Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Kate Hewlett, an actor, writer, and producer you might know from her appearances on everything from Stargate Atlantis and multiple Degrassi series to The Girlfriend Experience, Murdoch Mysteries, and The Parker Andersons. She also wrote the 2008 stage musical The Swearing Jar, about a young mother staging a concert for the father of her child, and subsequently adapted that, with director Lindsay McKay, into a feature film starring Adelaide Clements, Douglas Booth, and Patrick J. Adams. After premiering at TIFF last month, The Swearing Jar is now available on VOD in the U.S., and it's set to open theatrically in Toronto and Vancouver on November 2nd and 9th, respectively. Kate picked Lost in Translation, Sofia Coppola's 2003 follow-up to The Virgin Suicides, starring Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray as a listless young woman and a fading movie star who form an unexpected but profound connection while staying at the same Tokyo hotel. More about mood than story, the film was an instant favorite with critics, leading to an awards season run that culminated in Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, with Coppola winning the screenplay prize. Pretty good for a second feature. This is someone else's movie. There are a few movies that just stay with you for your whole life, right? There, there are those movies that you think are perfect, and it's one of those. It's one of those films for me. It's just there may be two tiny, two or three tiny moments where it hasn't aged well, but other than that, I thought it actually did age quite well, and I thought that uh, it's just the most incredible use of dialogue right because there's so little of it and i i think that is the opposite of what i do and i admire that so much to trust your vision to trust your actors to trust the the film you know the way the your vision of the film i guess that you don't need all those words <clears throat> so i just thought it was one of the most beautiful things ever and you would have seen it in its original release. The act, did you catch it theatrically or catch up to it later? Well, this is the crazy thing. So I saw it in the movie theaters when I was around Scarlett Johansson's age okay. and now her character. And now I'm closer to Bill Murray's age in the film. And that was a wild experience. It's, it was really incredible actually. And it was not something I would have expected. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to process that. I'm doing the math in my head. It's like, well, it's almost 20 years now, right? I mean, it was 2003. Yeah. And so I would have been, between them anyway, I would have been 35. Okay. So you I look was 35 on, now. Thank you. You're very so kind. That's confusing. I've been cycling. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> I have not. Uh, you look very young. Thank you. I have a high voice. That's Apparently, that's the other thing. People think I'm oh, really? younger than I am. I'm high for a man anyway, so I'm told. Sound more youthful. Youthful and more vulnerable is how I've heard it described back to me. <laughs> I swear to God, interviewing directors over the decades has been a real education in, in the way I see myself. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I was right between the two. Um, I was neither old enough to sympathize with Bill Murray, uh, nor was I young and beautiful enough to sympathize with Scarlett Johansson. Um, this is not self-deprecating. Nobody was at that time, really. Yeah. Like it's, it's kind of remarkable how the film captures her at this point where she's, 
as an actor, she's already in control of her image and she's confident in a way that lets her play innocent and naive in, in interesting ways. Like she's always reflecting back on herself. She's a prism. Yes. Um, and then she's what, five years away from the Marvel people starting to come courting and then and the, the whole course of her career changing. But right now she's sort of this art house jewel, this fixture. And she had done the horse whisperer. That's right. Remember that? That's it's where like I, I don't remember what year it was, but I did not, I was not a fan of her performance. Okay. I was not a fan. And I thought, Oh, that, that she's not going to have <laughs> much of a career. And then I was uh, at the la- and then I remember seeing lost in translation and being like, she may be one of the finest actors out there and she's very young it's fascinating because ghost world is in between those two which is the one for me where she really comes together she was great in ghost world yeah and again she's playing someone who is acutely aware of how people perceive her Mm. and chooses a different path than than edith does than the hero does and and sort of gets rejected by the film as a result like she's perceived as the sellout for the second act of the picture but that's i think just terry zwigoff's worldview Revisit that movie. I saw that a really long time ago. It makes sense if you see it as a movie made by the Steve Buscemi character, in a way, like his worldview is being reflected through the prism, but it's it's also refusing to let Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson be caricatures. They both get to be whole people. Right. And then she does this and it's like, oh, it's not just a thing of like somebody capturing her in that moment. This is like this is her version of an aesthetic. This is what she wants to do as an actor is to just That's exist it, right? on camera with interesting people. She needed to be in the right kind of movie. And mm-hmm. I think the horse whisperer was completely the wrong kind of movie, right? It, it just, she lives so well in that indie space. And in, I don't know, there's just, I, it was absolutely incredible her performance in this movie and even more so the second time, I think. She just has this uh, endlessly watchable quality and it's nothing to do. I mean, it doesn't hurt that she's stunningly beautiful, but it's not that really yeah. it's, she's so interesting. She looks like she's thinking about a million things and she's, 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 I mean, to go up against Bill Murray and hold your own, honestly, Yeah, it is something. But then I realized too, watching it again, that Bill Murray is allowing us to be fascinated by her because that's what he's giving out in his performance. Like he's just interested in her as a scene partner. He's he's completely engaged. He's giving it back and he's doing it through this facade of of disconnection where neither of them is fully invested in anything in the world except each other, which is what becomes so fascinating that they're they're creating this connection just by seeing each other. It's so fascinating. And it just elicits so many responses from me. Like it just, it, it captures certain feelings in a way that I, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was remarkable. You know, that the feeling of connecting with someone you hardly know instantly and whatever that is, if it's banter, if it's a shared experience if I don't know but that that happens now and then you know it happens with women and happens with men you you meet someone and you're like oh there you are and then they're gone again 
And it just captured that. And I thought so many other things too, coming back to it now, the character of the wife who exists mostly through notes, faxes and phone calls where you can't actually hear what she's saying, but you know exactly who she is. I thought that was brilliant as well, you know, and to trust as a filmmaker, to trust that, to trust that that will be interesting and clear was, was extraordinary too. Yeah. So much of it is about the two completely distinct spheres, like their personal lives just existing off camera, off the edge of the screen, like Giovanni Ribisi drifting in and out for, for, um, for Charlotte, I keep forgetting her name, uh, her character's name, because it's just so much Scarlett Johansson. It even sounds like Scarlett. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that supposedly, anyway, Coppola didn't have anyone in mind when she wrote it. She was just writing about herself originally mm-hmm. and then found Johansson and said, oh, no, this is perfect. I don't, I don't need to write anything further. I don't need any more backstory than I've already put on the page because she'll just embody it all, which is really interesting and completely not what I thought. It It feels so much in both cases, in both Johansson and Murray, that it was written specifically for them. Yes, it does. And was it not written for Bill Murray? I think it was. Okay. And maybe that's why I got the the sense that it was also written for Johansson. But you could probably plug in someone else of a similar age. Um, and as long as he's willing to go with the vibe of the film, it would work, right? Because so much of it is in the language of the film, is in the cinematography and the and the aesthetic and the vibe that mm-hmm. that Coppola and her collaborators are creating. So it's, I'm sure Saturday Night Live did this as a parody. If you organized this with Scarlett Johansson's footage and a mannequin, that it would still play as haunting and, and moving <laughs> just because the expectation is created by the film itself. But Murray is, again, just at that moment in his career where it could have gone either way. You know, it's five years after Rushmore, a couple of years after the Royal Tenenbaums, his melancholy is kicking in, but he's still, we still expect him to be funny. Yes. And because he doesn't do that here, because Bob Harris isn't Bill Murray, he's playing someone who's had a completely different career. It just disconnects us a tiny little bit in the audience. It makes us work a little harder to see who this guy is, which I found fascinating. I think he's supposed to be like a Warren Beatty alike, someone who's had that career. Or, or um, Bruce Willis. You think I, so? I did because there's a bit, there was a lot of action talk. Oh, that's true. They talked about the action movies. Stunts, right. And this kind of thing. Yeah. I was, I just assumed he was playing along in those scenes. It's funny. Cause you're right. That is part of it, but I've never taken it seriously. Cause Bill Murray's just not that guy. Right. He's not, he doesn't seem proud of his career. Mm-hmm. That's why I would, that's why I didn't think of Warren Beatty because he, he seems sort of ashamed of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And Willis and Murray sort of came up around the same, or they broke out around the same time. They're, they're almost contemporaries, even though that sounds really weird when I say it out loud. Yes. Murray's always been an old soul kind of guy. Like even, even in Ghostbusters, he's the cranky spectator. Yes, but I yeah. can't imagine him actually seeming young. Yeah, but he was. I mean, wow. he was reasonably young. Saturday Night Live was, what, six, seven years behind that? I'm, I'm doing all the math in my head now, and it's just making me very tired. But it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's this great legacy of work from him where, you know, everybody writes off the 90s for some weird reason when he did some of his best work in it, uh, just on, the, on, the, on either end of it, just doing his own stuff. But... He's always had this 
this sort of cracked integrity where he only works with people he wants to work with. And when he's doing favors for friends, you can always tell because there's a generosity to the performance, like Little Shop of Horrors and stuff like that, where he just shows up and you're happy to see him. And now he's this person. And yeah, I, I, I think it was John Harkness back at the time. I, I know we saw it together. Um, and he said that we are supposed to believe that Bill Murray is unhappy and somehow it it works because that's not something you think of when you look at his films. You don't see an unhappy person pretending to be happy. You see someone who's just inhabiting whatever this thing is that he's, this character that he's playing. And then gradually filmmakers, and this was John's point, they started to realize around, around the time of Rushmore that you can make him look sad if he just stands still. Like there's, there's something to him that comes out. Sad clown. Yeah. But that's, Absolutely. that's so, that's so easy, right? Like that's just such a, an easy way for him to play it. And that's not what Bill Murray is doing, no. right? He may be here a little bit in his scenes with the press, in his scenes with reporters where he so doesn't want to be there. But then you get him doing everything else that he does in this film. And it's it's wistful and interesting and rich with character, even when he's just waiting for someone to take his picture. There's There's all this stuff that's happening behind his eyes. And I don't think I'd ever seen it before not from not from him anyway no it was i i think it's my it's definitely my favorite performance of his ever i i just thought there was so much again going on in his eyes and i think they're very much i don't i don't think you could i don't think the movie would have been what it was without either of them honestly i thought because he does bring a certain lightness to it even though it's very he is very sad and you can see that he's lived a life that wasn't quite what he expected or hoped for, but he's finding his joy again in this, or he's trying to. And so there's, I don't know, there's a sense of play and all of that as well. Yeah. It feels like he's doing a comedy. No, no, it's true. He's he's playing the drama of it, or at least he's playing the reality of it. Honesty, yeah. Yeah, and what we get is the pleasure of his company. Like, we just yeah. get to watch Bill Murray be alive on screen in a way that he usually isn't. And even though so much of the film is intentionally hermetic, you know, like it's sort of compressing them into spaces where there's not a lot of room, there's not a lot of air, you just start to understand how how much it's appreciated that they have these little quiet moments together where no one else can bother them and where no one punctures their, their little cocoon. And yeah, I, I, it's like vacation friends, right? Like you run into somebody that you've never met before. You spend 48 hours with them and you never see them again. And it's transformative partially because it can be really interesting to spend time with someone you don't know because you get to reinvent yourself a little bit, mm -hmm. but also there's the, the weird flattery of being seen which I'm sure is what Charlotte responds to as much as Bob does. Like they're, they're both delighted that they can be this version of themselves that they think they are all the time, but that someone else will actually recognize it and, and that they can connect that way. That's what I noticed about it this time was that it's not even about connecting. It's not just about connecting with another person. It's about your best version of yourself and someone finding you hilarious or getting all your looks or there's something about that, right. That just feeds your ego <laughs> and, and your soul that when, when you meet someone and they think you are what you want to be. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. 
and it's it's the feedback thing too right where you actually can try something and and see what it does like this 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 moment where i mean that that wonderful it's the karaoke scene right like i don't know that he picks that song if he's singing it to someone else and the the freedom that he has emotionally to do that because there's no judgment and nobody else it's the how well you know this the bill murray stories right that everybody says there's there are all these legends of him just walking up to people and stealing one of their french fries and saying no one will ever believe you which i think is oh yeah yeah someone's (laughs) actually made a documentary about that of course they have (laughs) and the idea that he's this larger than life imp who just wanders around bothering people but nobody cares because it's bill murray and it's just fun that's that's come post lost in translation more than anything else. I think because people want to have Bob Harris, they want to see this version of Bill Murray who is incredibly soulful and knows what to say and and knows how to handle people and isn't annoyed that you're bothering him when he's on vacation. You know, all of all these, this, this perfect way of meeting a celebrity. And in a weird way, it comes back in, in somewhere in Coppola's other film about celebrity and, and the, the weird interaction between really, really famous people and the world around them. And you're reminded, oh, of course, she's she's Sofia Coppola. She grew up surrounded by famous relatives, famous friends. Yes. She doesn't think twice about it. And yeah, you probably have had a karaoke night with Bill Murray that went a lot like this. Mm-hmm. But rather than make the movie that um, that The Virgin Suicides was, that somewhere kind of is, which is that, oh, look at me, I have all this and I'm not happy she's doing it from the perspective of someone who is desperately trying to be happy yes and doesn't know why she isn't and that's the thing that i find so compelling because that's what bob harris is living and that's what charlotte is living and the movie doesn't have an answer right like it it, the, the the thesis statement is not that the friends of famous people should be friends with famous people like that's not where this thing is going no it's true and i think it's just there is hope to this one and i think that's what makes it so beautiful they both have hope I think that they will find, they will find more than what they have right now. And they believe in the other person too. Yeah. Each of them is the catharsis that the other needs, I think, but without making it sexual and without making it gross, it's just, it's not about codependency. It's just about connection. And like, there's a gross version of this movie and there are dozens of them. And Woody Allen has made about seven of them, but But I wonder there, why. Yeah, it's just so unsettling. Looking back now, it's like, oh, that one too. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That was a subplot there. But yeah. to to see this and realize like this is, it, and I think it had to be made by someone who has been in that situation herself, like a young woman who was an actor and and for a little while, and that didn't work, and she had to find something else. Um, and to be able to recapture that sense of uncertainty uh, in your own life. And then to also extend that generosity to Bob, right? It's not just about her. It's about the two of them. And it's it's so even-handed, I, it, way more so than I remember. When I, I had this vague memory of spending way more time with Charlotte. And it turns out it's 60-40, really. See, I thought that's very interesting because I thought it was much more Bill Murray. My okay. memory of it was that it was almost all Bill Murray. Huh. Maybe that's just we needed that person more than the other person. Yeah. That's where we were when we saw it. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it is very even. So that was a surprise to me. I also, I had a different take on, on Bob's response to 
fans as well. Cause I actually thought he was pissed off. I thought he was kind of an asshole. Sometimes he was on his best behavior with her, mm-hmm. but I did think he, he didn't appreciate people coming up to him and saying, it depends. I guess he didn't like it when he was sort of, there was an element of like circus, <laughs> circus freak. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there was an element of, yeah, yeah people pointing and talking about him and then coming over. And I don't know, he was, he, I don't know. There was some, do you know what I'm saying? I don't yeah, know. The fishbowl thing where he's just constantly yeah. existing in people's worlds where people are yes. always aware of him. I, yeah. I mean, just that he's great with her, that he's with her. He's not doing any of that stuff. Like he'll, he'll turn it on when he has to, to get people to leave him alone. But yeah, when Bob is with Charlotte, he, you just get the sense that he's letting himself be instead of being on his guard. I also don't think she knew who he was though. Think so? Yeah. She's married to a director. But they met in the elevator and she said she didn't remember meeting him. And I think that's true. Oh. I didn't think she knew who he was. I thought that was part of the freedom. But maybe, I don't know, maybe she was, maybe that wasn't true that she didn't remember meeting him in the elevator. I'm referencing it now against the scene in Somewhere where... Stephen Dorff and Benicio del Toro end up in the same elevator in the Chateau Marmont. And it's just like, yeah, this happens to him every day. I'm, maybe that's it. That she just didn't know. Maybe she didn't recognize him because he was older and there was, there was a thing there that she doesn't want to say. I don't know. No, I don't know. I know. He gets approached by women all the time, right? People are mm-hmm. trying to hit on him. People are, and I thought there was something about her not knowing who he was. It's Partially- a liberation. Yeah. I can see that. Because he was before her time. But I don't know. They don't. They don't make it. Sofia Coppola doesn't make it super clear. No, and and Johansson's not playing it with any kind of slyness, right? Like she's not faking yeah. that she doesn't know him for our benefit. There's no. There's no signaling to the audience at all, which I, in any of these interactions, which I think is great. There's no. There's no sense that the movie is letting us in on the secret. We're just. We're just right. there because the camera's there. Like we're not a participant. The film is like it, there are movies that invite us in in a, in a way that Lost in Translation just isn't interested in doing. No, and the ending is the perfect example of that, right? That we don't get to hear what he says. It's his email. I'm sure of it. You know, if they haven't, <laughs> yeah, Big Bob at Hotmail dot com or something. <laughs> He's just making sure they can still connect. I, I, I don't know. I, I and I don't want to know. Honestly, to be to be absolutely true to the film. I, I believe very much that the movie tells us everything we need mm-hmm. and it's up to us to fill in the blanks, but I don't, I also don't want to know what he says. And I, I love, I, I love the fact that people are still obsessed with that. It's the, I, I did, I just did my basic Wikipedia research to make sure I had everything lined up properly before we started talking. And the first thing that comes up on Google when you enter the film's title is what does he say? It's like, yeah. Yeah. You'll never know. <laughs> of course I googled it and went down the rabbit hole and then there is an answer now really but it was and I won't tell you but it was an improv it was improvised and he it's not very it, it doesn't mean much really what he said so I think in a similar way to with the swearing jar actually the ending is what you want the ending to be that I know, I know what the ending is for me, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that that's going to be your perception of it. And your so I, I thought 
Lost in Translation did the same thing. There, there's, it doesn't really matter what he said because we hear, I, I never ever thought of it as they're going to continue. I thought of it as a goodbye with, with this, with Lost in Translation. I definitely thought it was a goodbye. And it was just, he wanted a proper goodbye because she didn't look back at him. And yeah. I don't, I didn't think it was a continuation that they would see each other again or be in contact anymore. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I wrote about Universal's 40th anniversary edition of E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and Elevation's 4K discs of A24's folk horror trinity, The Witch, Hereditary, and Midsommar. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io. If you do it by noon on Wednesday, you can still get in on this week's giveaway. Did you miss me writing about stuff? So did I. Come check it out. There's a world where there's like a before sunrise, before sunset, before midnight thing to their relationship where they're never a couple, but they just keep running into each other at various things. And we can track Charlotte's development as an artist right. based on Bob finding her. Because they, they're they inevitably going to be, I think, anyway, this is my personal canon, is that they're going to run into each other again because that's just how their world works. And eventually she'll either be married to someone else who's actually paying attention to her and she'll be the artist doing the tour and Bob will be there. And it would be, I mean, in my head, it's all, it's never in Hollywood. It's always somewhere else. It's a film festival here and an art gallery opening there and they just keep connecting, but they never try. It's, and then I realize it's the, it's a version of the Fletch Moxie relationship from the Fletch books, which, um, which I would have read in the eighties. Um, so the, the running gag in these, um, in the Fletch books was that Fletch has this incredible, supermodel girlfriend. It was all very stylized and, and very 80s. Um, mm. And everybody's incredibly young and beautiful. And Fletch and Moxie run into each other constantly and they always pretend they don't know each other. And that's the def the defining factor of their relationship is that they never plan it, but whenever they're in the same place, they just strike up a new relationship. Mm. And I can I could sort of see that here, even though I'm imposing a completely different narrative onto the film at this point by having that, but it just feels like we're seeing the first encounter of, of this life-changing relationship, which, which will, even if they never see each other again, will continue to influence them. Yes. I believe but, that. I don't think my take on it would, would be that they never see each other again, that this is it, that this is the one time and it does affect both of them. But, you know, if I were to create my own narrative, I would say, this hap they meet, this happens. They think about each other all the time. They, in the, in the world of Facebook or something like that, they would look each other up. They would be curious about each other, but if they were to meet again, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. And I've had that, I've had that before as well. I had a very similar thing happen to me and I never realized until I watched the movie again that I actually had this it was very similar. And we met up against, we met up again one time. And I think it was so disappointing because for me anyway, I wasn't the best version of myself this time. Okay. I was like, oh my God, he's going to think I'm not funny. He thought I was so funny the first time. And oh, he's going to think I'm a loser or, you know, it just, it, it was, it wasn't the same. And I'm glad it wasn't the same. Because it would have 
exploded two lives, more than two lives, 10 lives. Um, And it wasn't that kind of connection. It was just one of those connections that you have in your life. It changes everything. Never, never physical, never any lines crossed at all, but it was, I, I remember every moment of it. Yeah. I've been in that situation too, I guess. There was one time, but I think I'm flattering myself when I remember it because it was years and years ago. And I just, it was this conversation with somebody at a, at a film festival. Cause that's the only time you meet new people um, <laughs> where it's just like, Oh, this is the person who's going to blow up my relationship if I'm not careful. And it right. didn't, happen and I have no idea if she was even attracted to me at all but it was just one of those conversations that goes on way too long for for what it is yeah and then you gradually realize this is this is a really weird place that I'm and I'm doing all of this work myself like I'm investing it all on myself and I have absolutely no idea um but it was just one of those things where you see it in the rear view and you realize just how much of yourself you've invested without even thinking about it. Yeah. And it's just because somebody reacted the right way to one thing or that you reacted the right way to the thing that they did. And it snowballs. Yeah. And and it's like, I'm not finding myself contemplating an affair or anything like that, but all of a sudden it's just like, wow, this is, this feels great. Like it, this feels like a conversation that I should be having every day all the time. And that's how Absolutely. it starts. And it's so, it's so dangerous, you know, because it happens it's, it hasn't happened to me when I was in a relationship. It hasn't happened very much when I'm in relationships, but it happens a lot when they're in relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's that, it is that thing of this person would, would change my life. This person would, we just have something that is incredibly unique and I'm um, clearly not because it keeps Yeah, happening. exactly. Um, exactly. Right. Cause yeah, it's, it's just it's a newness. more about it's obviously more about yourself. It's more about the way that they make you feel about yourself. And it's, it's not a sexual thing, but you know that it could be. And yeah, it's, it's a, I don't know. That's some, that's some therapy shit there. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) And, and the, the age gap in the film allows it not to be a thing. Like it just, these characters are too smart. These people are too mature to try even to flirt like that's just not what they're doing they're just meeting on a level of intellectual flirtation i disagree oh yeah i disagree and i noticed that more this time too i mean he is dying to touch her all the time there you know the the moment where he's he touches her toe did you notice that he's holding on to her toe they're lying on the bed together and he's got his hand on her toe and he, he t- every moment, every touch in the film is so specific and so uh, charged. There's one part where he puts her to bed and the only skin showing is just on her shoulder. Yeah. And he touches that. He doesn't touch her here. He touches her there when he says, you know, good night. And see, I think he would sleep with her. I think that they both would have if somebody had crossed the line. And fortunately, they were both too smart to do that. But I okay. think that it was so close. And the and the kiss, right? They do kiss. Yeah. I, it's funny. It feels like role-playing to me. Like, it feels like neither of them is intent on going through with it. There's just... I, maybe it's just the, the 
the way that I'm perceiving Murray's performance now, where he's just sort of allowing us to luxuriate in Scarlett Johansson as well, the way he gives back, the, the, the way he's always watching and, and seeing her and looking. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't read desire. I just read affection, like fondness. And maybe some part and of my love. brain is just shutting. Well, yeah. Right? There is. I think they fall in love, whatever it means. I, I think you know, sex would cheapen it. He has sex with the singer who he doesn't have any respect for. And mm -hmm. he, I think there is an element of that, that sex would cheapen it. And also, I don't think, he, I think he doesn't want to be creepy. Yeah. Right? I there, think that's there. the thing that that's in his <laughs> performance too, right? Like it keeps us, it keeps us from worrying that he's going to cross the line. And maybe that's it. It just diffuses the tension of it. Yeah, when he's carrying her, you don't think, oh, God, this is going to turn into promising young woman, right? Yeah. You, you just trust him. He's got that sort of dad quality to him. But I do think that it's very sexually charged. I really did feel that. And I don't know that age, I definitely don't think age prevents that, you know? Yeah. It's funny. The film is, I mean, it's absolutely true that the movie sees her as a sexual object. I mean, the opening shot alone is, is just sort of a, Hey, yep. She's she's, you know, this is, this is what we would market as a hot girl. Yeah. Image. It's just, you know, it's just a translucent panty shot. It's. I didn't understand that. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure why it was there either, but I think it's supposed to be there now to demonstrate that she could, if she wanted to, that she, that her attractiveness is enough in terms of the currency of this world that she could sleep with anybody she wants, get whatever she wants. And it's just not, she's not that person, but right. we're introduced to her as an object before we get to know her as a human. And yeah. it's the same thing that Coppola does in the Virgin suicides, right? Because she keeps the sisters distant and then brings us in. Hmm. So we, we see them through the gaze of the young men who knew them, but couldn't save them. And that whole savior thing becomes the defining factor of that narrative. This isn't that, but this is the same way of saying, look, I know what people see when they look at young women. Now I'm going to show you what's inside. So, so you're, you think that she's almost showing her how he sees her or how he could, how he could, like, this is how she exists in the world that she lives in, but she refuses to I mean, in use the it to her advantage in the elevator. That's probably what he yeah, probably sees, right? And maybe she doesn't pay attention to it because she's used to being looked at. So she doesn't yeah. even clock who she's being looked at by. Yeah. That could work. Okay. That, well, I, I accept this. <laughs> I accept this theory. Okay. I like our theory. Um, <laughs> yeah. My, my sister is um, honestly one of the most beautiful human beings <laughs> in every way, but physically ridiculous. Um and I realized at a certain point, I realized more so when I lived with her, the way the world is, is so different. Her experience of the world is so different mm. and it's not better. It's just, she has to have a harder, like she always had to be a little bit tougher than the rest of it. She had to be ruder to people because otherwise she would never be able to get anywhere. Like literally physically, she wouldn't be able to get to the store. Oh, I see. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? yeah. She yeah. had to be a little ruder and she had to work almost harder, which is not what you would expect, expect. But I don't think people saw her and thought, you must be very smart. You know, I, I think she had to work harder. And it, it's uh 
Yeah. So I, I thought about this. I thought about her watching this film this time too. Mm. Yeah. That weird presumption that because you look a certain way, you don't have to try in other things. Like you don't have to achieve anything else. Yeah. Which I've never fully understood, but yeah, yeah I'm, I've been, I've been in, in enough spaces with genuinely famous people to realize that I disappear. And it's not necessarily looks, right? Like it's just, it's charisma or fame or reputation. It is something you can feel, I think, when you watch people on stage or when you see a film and you just think, oh my God, they have it. They have it. They have whatever that is. It's yeah. incredible. Um, I have two very, I think, I think funny stories to tell you. So I, I, this was another thing the film made me think of. So this, when I saw it the first time, I hadn't done Stargate yet. And okay. Stargate has a huge fan base, international, massive fan base. And my brother was one of the leads, right? So he, and he's had other, a huge career anyway, but he he gets recognized all the time. But I played his sister on the show. And so that is the only real taste of fame I've ever had and all it is, is when I'm at a Stargate convention, right? right? So if I'm in the real world, I think maybe once ever I had someone say, hey, you're David Hewlett's sister. <laughs> it still wasn't my name, uh, right. but they recognized me. I think it happened once. But at these Stargate conventions, I am legitimately famous. And it's so weird because you... you the whole rest of my life, it's not true. Yeah. But at these conventions, it's like everything I say is funny. And I, <laughs> every answer I give is the right answer. And they're so, they just give you so much love and they're so supportive. And it's wild, right? It's what you can't go to the bathroom by yourself. Someone has to follow you. Someone has to take you. And you're, it, it's, everyone should experience this at some point in their life where they <laughs> feel this famous, you know? And and it is not the case at even other sci-fi conventions where there are people from all different shows. No one knows who I am, but a Stargate convention, I'm famous. And this, this, that feeling of, of, um, of fame, watching it this time, I related to that, right? Where you're like certain people, that certain people who saw Bill Murray in this movie uh, know exactly who he is. And he's, and he's, you know, on the side of the bus and all that. And then some people don't have a clue, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, but, half the people in the bar probably, yeah, you know, wouldn't know him. And maybe also when think, he picks up the microphone, maybe when he starts to sing. I did think maybe he was more famous in Japan. I wondered that too, because I don't think he did those commercials back home. So is he just an actor from the past at home? But in Japan, he's super, super, super famous, you know? Right. Well, that's like Stallone and Schwarzenegger doing, the, doing those ads too. I think that's where it came from, the idea that the oh, yeah. action stars would be. And yeah. Bruce Willis must have done one too, actually, now that I think about right. it. So, so I had this feeling of fame that stuck with me just a little tiny bit, you know, where you're like, or, or, you know, Twitter or whatever. You're like, sure. oh, I've got, you know, and it's a nice feeling, gives you a little boost. So I did, I had, I have two things, two stories. One of them was I went to a, a ramen noodle restaurant and I, I I go in, I, I'm by myself and I order a big bowl of noodles and I, I eat everything. And then at the end, <clears throat> the guy comes over to give me the bill and he goes, I, can I, can I please, uh, can we take your picture and put it on the wall? And I was like, oh my God, oh, yeah, look at me, look at me. 
So I get up and he starts to take the picture and I realize <laughs> it's because no one has ever finished this particular dish <laughs> in one sitting. And there's a wall of fame for people who finished <laughs> specific was that I ate so much. That's why I was, That's- I had no idea about this. So that was a good little uh, reminder. And then the other one was I ran a 10K 10k race and as i'm crossing the finish line they're like kate hewlett and i i did this waving thing and then i realized they were they were saying everyone's name as they crossed the line it's just like those those moments you know they keep you they keep you humble no you deserve celebration for both of those accomplishments oh my god thank you thank you and one facilitated the other so god the one thing i did want to ask about or, or point to i suppose um is that Lost in Translation and The Swearing Jar, I was going to say they don't have a lot in common when you when people pick their movies, I do the thing where it's like, oh, but what about, how does this connect to that? And mm-hmm. what I'm impressed with and what you've alluded to about The Swearing Jar is that it is a film that obfuscates in a completely different manner. Like Lost mm-hmm. in Translation actively hides things from us. The Swearing mm-hmm. Jar just puts them on a different space and eventually knits everything together mm-hmm. in a way that is enigmatic but also fairly clear like by the end of the movie we know we know the whys and the hows and maybe we don't know exactly when certain things were chosen or certain decisions were made but it, the, the the shuffling of time in the in the course of the film is i'm assuming not what was possible on stage no it was did you do the same thing i did yeah we did the fringe then we did the new york fringe then it was produced professionally in winnipeg mm-hmm. And that's it for Canada. Wow. I was not, I, I'm not a, a, a darling of the theater. I am not one of the loved playwrights here. I, I think everyone always felt like my writing sounded too much like film and TV. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Naturalistic. I don't know. I don't know. That's so strange. I mean, I developed it through the Tarragon Playwrights Unit. They were incredible. Mm-hmm. Very supportive, but it was never produced at the Tarragon. Interesting. I mean, I would think now there's probably likely to be more demand for it right now that the film is out there. I really hope so. I would love to have it done in, in Ontario. I, I, I'm also not very good about going out to people and, and saying, will you do this play? So I'm my friend, Jessica Carmichael is a director, incredible director, theater director. And I'm trying to get her to, to take it to different places with me, you know, so that we can, we can find a, a place to do it. I would love to do it at theater Aquarius here in Hamilton actually too. Oh yeah. But you know, withholding as a dramatic device is really interesting and, yeah. and lust in translation builds an entire world on it. And the swearing jar, it's not like that exactly. It's not doing the same thing, but it is about making us wonder what the bigger picture is. So for me, the sort of withholding, I guess, that I do narratively is so that we are on the journey with her and seeing, we are seeing her the way she sees herself. So she feels like she's, you know, um, being disloyal and uh, all of these things. I, I just felt that it was impossible to tell this story any other way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the play, the play is the same. Because wow. it's, yeah, it's actually, it ended up being very similar. The screenplay and the and the play are actually very similar because I had all these other characters I had added, but they sort of got removed again. So by the director. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, she kind of cut it back down. So it's really, really Carrie's story, you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I know Lindsay a little. She was one of the very first guests on the podcast, actually. She, um, back when Wet Bum came out. What did she choose? Uh, she chose Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher. Episode nine, all the way back. Okay, I don't know what that is. I don't know oh, what it's, that is. Um, it's terrific. It's a, it's a, like an almost Ken Loach neorealistic portrait of a, of a troubled kid in Scotland. It was her first feature. It's remarkably immediate and painful. There's a Criterion edition of it. It's, it's tremendous. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm making a little list of all the things I need to see. Sure. And not at all like Wet Bum or The Swearing Jar. Like, um, yeah. Lindsay seems to be drawn towards, how, do, how can I describe it? Suburban vulnerable stories. Mm. It sounds reductive, but but it yeah. is like a certain time and a place and a space yeah. in people's lives where they're they're caught between who they are and who they were going to be, which yeah. I guess is also lost in translation, right? I mean, yeah. at least from Charlotte's point of view. I was going to text her and see if, if this was one of her favorite movies, actually, because I realized watching it, how much of that style I felt she brought to Swearing Jar. And I don't, I don't know if like, maybe, maybe Sofia Coppola is one of her um, influences. I don't, or, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Or yeah, influences. I don't know. Maybe I not. Wonder, all, but I'm I wonder, I'm thinking about both films, both Wet Bomb and The Swearing Jar and their, and there's a there's definitely an appreciation for people living in spaces, like just existing with each other and and feeling each other out. Wet bum is really lost in translation too, actually, because it's the younger girl and the older man. Yes. Yeah. Oh, now I want to ask her too. Let me know what she says. I can do it now. She's pretty good at. She's like one of those people who texts instantly. So I said, to, I sent to Lindsay is lost in translation. One of your faves or no, very strange question out of the blue. Yeah. She said, I mean, I like it. One of my faves. There was a time. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Which is appropriately elliptical. Yeah. I'm going to write later. How, how mysterious <laughs> is that? <laughs> She'll listen to this and suddenly realize the whole context. Yeah. yeah. It'll all make sense. She's going to be texting me now. What the hell's going on? Um, we sort of covered it, but obliquely, uh, the, the ending of the podcast is usually me trying to find out if there is something that's specifically drawn from the thing. So was there something from Lost in Translation that you pulled out to work with the swearing jar or was it just a more of a free floating influence? I think Lost in Translation, uh, influenced me without me realizing it and coming back to it now, I think a lot of the themes are things that I I'm drawn to, you know, loneliness, connection. Um, what was that? I wrote down a few things because, um, oh, that sense of how did I get here? Dreams versus reality, connection, aging, all, all these things. I just, I, I realized that it did, it did have quite an influence, even though I, I used so much more dialogue than they did in this, in this movie. Um, yeah. And I guess the being drawn to someone when you can't be with them, I guess, um, an unattainable love, that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, um, it's so, it's so good at evoking longing yes. in, in almost every form. 
not just for another person to see you, but for a place to get you, for a place to be comfortable in, to feel like you belong somewhere, anywhere. Mm. It's um, it's that thing that Coppola does so well as a filmmaker too, because so many of her movies are about people who just don't feel comfortable where they are. Yes. Uh, even though they should, have, like on the outside, they should be right at home or they should have everything or they should have enough money or resources to get the things that they want that make them feel comfortable. And it's just this essential human quality of, you know, what am I doing here? Yeah. And somehow getting the answer from this other person, getting what you need from this other person you don't even know and who, who feels I'm so cheesy, but who feels like home. Right. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's a brilliant movie. Still holds up. Yeah, I'm just so weirded out by the fact that now I'm just identifying so much with the Bob Harris character just because we're this, we're roughly the same age now. And I'm 45, so he I think he's supposed to be 50 in the film or somewhere around there. I mean, they keep saying middle age, so maybe younger than 50. I don't know. I mean, who knows what middle age means anymore? I'm 54. So Jesus, it gets see? more ridiculous every time. Exactly, it's preposterous. I'm youthful. <laughs> I'm not youthful. My thanks to Kate Hewlett. And you should check out The Swearing Jar, now that it's available on VOD in the U.S., and opening theatrically in Toronto and Vancouver, November 2nd and 9th, respectively. Thanks also to Ali Lemaire Shedden. She knows what she did. You can find Kate on Twitter at Kate Hewlett, all one word, and you can find Lost in Translation on Blu-ray and DVD from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Crave and Stars in Canada, and Showtime and DirecTV in the U.S., and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Simcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Simcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 45 of which, including Swearing Jar director Lindsay McKay's episode on Ratcatcher, aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.